Welcome to Insurance Uncut. I'm Jessica Clark. And I'm Charles Cronier. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch via LinkedIn or our website. Let's kick off with this week's episode. So really excited for our conversation today. This was another topic that we've actually had requested so much from people. So it was mentioned lots at Gyro and when we've been having conversations with people and when people get in touch. So climate change is something that I know a lot of people are still struggling with and want to know more about. I think people are quite conscious that they want to do the right thing within their roles and within their lives, but also it's such a massive risk potentially. And it can feel, I think, really, really daunting when you start trying to understand all the different parts of it that it can almost be really hard to know even where to start with it. So really pleased that we're chatting about it today. And to help us go through the conversation, really, really pleased to welcome Lara Palmer from LCP and Russ Bowdry from Autech Finance. So welcome both to Insurance Uncut. Hello. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Great. So Russ, why don't you just tell us a bit more about what Autech Finance is and your kind of career journey to date and how you kind of got into the world of climate. Okay, I'll start with me and then I'll talk about Autech. So, yep, my name's Russ Bowdry. I'm an actuary. I qualified, goodness, over 10 years ago. Now, I started out as an aerospace engineer, probably from about age eight. I felt like I was an aerospace engineer. My degree was in aerospace engineering. I was sponsored through university by the Air Force, but I snapped my Achilles tendon, so that didn't quite work out. But I fell into actuarial discovered I was a massive geek and really loved it. (laughs) So my career journey started at EY doing pensions work and then life insurance work, which really fascinated me. Then got a bit deeper onto the investment side, working at Just Group just before their IPO, and then eventually moved to Aviva, where I spent a happy seven years there in the group ALM team. And the latter four years there, I got involved with climate risk. So Aviva decided they wanted to be one of the early disclosers of a TCFD aligned climate risk report. And these were really the early days of that sort of thing. And so we formed a working group of people internally and made sense of how to do it. And then from my vantage point within the group ALM team, then started making sense of what we could do with all the data that we gleaned from it and what sort of actions we could start start doing off the back of it. And then just over two years ago, I made the leap across to Autech Finance. I'd actually met them whilst I was still at Aviva, really admired what they were trying to do. And then the opportunity came up to join them and it meant that I could do the climate risk work all the time. So basically took the things I loved about my job, really loved about my job at, at Aviva and was able to distill them down into the climate risk things. So what I'm doing now at Autic Finance, I lead the client-facing side of our climate team. And I'll talk a little bit more Autic Finance more generally in a second, but essentially me and my team, we're the the people, the humans that come with the data and the modeling. And we spend a lot of time working with our clients to help them understand what the modeling means, but really crucially to help them integrate those learnings and results into the way they make decisions into their governance frameworks, into educating their boards, and, and but ultimately changing the way that they make decisions is the crux of it. And Lara, do you also just want to give a brief introduction to you? Yes, sure. I'm Lara Palmer, consultant and qualified actuary at LCP. So I work a lot with 
Jess and Shell day to day, co-lead our climate change efforts with Jess as well. So sort of working out how we can best support insurers in the climate change space, doing market research, things like that, which has been a super exciting and interesting journey over the last couple of years, particularly. And yeah, getting to know experts in the field like Russ, which is great. So can I jump in with an initial question then? What I've observed is that when people think about climate change and climate change modelling, the first thing they tend to go to is the investments. And of course, for long-term investors, it is obviously very important. But what I've observed is a lot less attention being given to the impact of climate change on liabilities. What do you think of that? Is that a correct perception? And if so, why is the liability side lagging and what might change that? Be keen to sort of explore that with you today. Yeah, I could give some initial thoughts. I suppose that in the insurance world, there's, of course, the life side, which obviously has a lot much longer tail and is, I guess, a lot easier for people to start identifying with because there'll still be things on the books when a lot of the risks associated with climate change and our attempts to mitigate them actually start to manifest directly. So I do see some attention being put into that, although it would appear that it's non-trivial So if you consider some of the TCFD reports produced by the big pension schemes last year, the pensions regulator noted that their assessment of the liability side was quite lightweight. But I think that was because it's a big piece of work even just to look at the investment side, which we were lucky enough to be involved with a few of those big schemes. So got to see that firsthand. Although I'm increasingly then seeing within the insurance market, there is yeah a focus on that. People are starting to think about it within the context of risk transfer in particular. So the UK is a really interesting example because currently we're kept at a moderate temperature all year round compared to continental Europe, at least, by the Gulf Stream. And to some extent, if you're then looking at our longevity trends over the long term, that sort of moderation becomes quite important. And so there's an increasing amount of work to think about what are known as those excess mortality days. So for example, when we have very extreme spikes in either heat or cold, what does that do to your mortality experience and things like that? But fundamentally, it's quite uncertain because we don't necessarily know what happens to the Gulf Stream in different climate scenarios. But that in itself is actually quite informative. So if something is more uncertain than, say, is being priced by the risk transfer market, then is that an opportunity to transfer or not? That was almost the question I wanted to kick off asking was the thing I hear, and I know, Lara, you do as well constantly, is still, which I find quite surprising, and and not for everybody, to be fair, there there are definitely people that move beyond this, but it's still a challenge for many people to get their head around is, well, I just rewrite my policy next year. It's one year business. Why should I care from a business perspective? Um, we can just reprice the policy next year. So I guess, Ara, what is your answer to that question? Is, is why should us as people working within the insurance world care about climate change beyond it just being a good thing? You're right, we definitely hear that a lot. And it is, probably is a reflection on why the liability side has been less well-modelled to date than the asset side as well. I mean, there is some argument to that, but also so many arguments the other way. On the physical risk side, for example, yes, you can reprice each year with property insurance, things like that. But we are seeing real change now. If you're not capturing that in your pricing, you will be underpricing your risks potentially and reserving capital, everything else as well. I think the other angle, though, is 
this is a systemic risk that is changing everything. Insurance is needed to make the world go round fundamentally and the world is changing and so the products insurers are offering needs to change drastically. Whole entire industries are going to change, die off, be reinvented, etc. Insurers really need to be there along that journey with them. So there's a real kind of strategic piece that needs doing by insurers. And then even on stuff you've already written, things like the litigation risks, you might have a massive back book exposure there. There might be new types of latent claims coming out of suing directors in a DNO book or other types of litigation risks that if you're not modeling and understanding your exposure to now, you could be facing a big issue later down the line. So I believe insurers absolutely should care. I think the other thing that it maybe informs is strategy. So it takes time to build up a business presence in certain parts of the world. And there are certainly opportunities in some parts of the world where maybe whether that's providing insurance cover to growing industries like the renewable sectors in the emerging markets, but then also just maybe taking advantage of the lack of climate awareness now to exit markets at a good price, say for a business, and then redeploy that capital into other lines. One thing I'm observing though, is that certainly the bigger global reinsurers seem to be thinking about climate in their cost of capital. And that does seem to make its way. What we're hearing anecdotally is it's making its way into some of the pricing of those sort of layered like arrangements. A question that's been on my mind has been for a general insurer where Okay, putting aside the latent claims issue, which of course is important, but putting that aside, you're writing new business every year, you get to reprice it generally every year. Does it make sense for a general insurer to be trying to morph into a sort of a post-climate change firm, or is it better to say, well, let's just make the most out of insuring the world as it is now, and we can always set up a new division to insure renewables or climate change or transition-related stuff later? The renewables and the transition needs to be happening now. That's not really a later thing. Well, it's certainly the, the most on top of things insurers should be making the most of the opportunity now. I would worry that if you left it too long, you'd miss out on that opportunity, to be honest. You then, I think, start with, okay, so how do I go about doing something with that? What should I be doing? And a key challenge that I think many people are having is getting what I call quote unquote data. Like, what is the world going to look like? What is going to happen? And I know, Russ, I will take you do a lot of kind of climate modeling and looking at different future pathways. Do you maybe want to just give us a brief summary of what that modeling is and how it works and what are the different pathways that you look at and consider? Sure. So the general approach to climate modeling right now is a scenario-based approach. The reason for that is there's just so much uncertainty, both on the climate change side, which typically called physical risks. So these are the risks that come from rising temperatures or increasing frequency and severity of extreme weather and the impacts of those onto the economies and then asset classes. And then on the what we call transition side, which is essentially our attempts to mitigate climate risk through policy or regulation. That's So on the physical side, the uncertainty is basically down to the way that physics and chemistry works, that it's uncertain. Even the maths is uncertain. But on the transition side, we have an additional element of uncertainty, which is humans. So we don't know when policymakers will implement policy. We don't know how regulators will respond. We don't know how the markets will respond to them. And therefore, 
scenarios has become, if you like, the gold standard for doing that. And it's the best tool for the job. And you'll see that if you look at the regulatory stress tests. And if you spend any time looking at this domain at all, you'll be aware of various different scenario sets that are out there. So at Auto Finance, we have our own proprietary sets of scenarios. Essentially, these are, we describe them as narratives or pathways. Essentially, one way to think of it is quantitative storytelling. So we have a story that we believe is a plausible future, not a stress test, a plausible future. And we're presenting these as a range of plausible futures. And we tell then a story about the sorts of regulations that are put in. Is this a world that ends up as net zero by 2050? What sort of range of regulations or policies you know, from subsidies to carbon taxes to mandated introduction or phasing out of technologies and things like that? What's required to get us to that sort of world? And then what sort of world does that put us in from a physical risk point of view? We can then quantitatively take those through our models, which we understand well. And then the big job of me and my team is to then help our clients to understand what those outputs mean, what drives them. And I guess that's the real big difference between a scenario approach and a full stochastic approach is that explainability. When we've been speaking before, something that I found really interesting was thinking about the kind of second order kind of effects potentially from climate change. So things that I think everybody can go, oh, well, the climate's warming, so we'll might get more hurricanes and then think about that with regards to their physical risk. But the kind of level of modeling that, or thinking that goes beyond that in terms of the kind of second order impacts, I don't think everybody's necessarily considering those when they're thinking about impacts on their books and their portfolios. Um, so you want to maybe just describe a couple of them. I know there's probably far too many to cover in the time today. Yeah. So we're very lucky that we partner with Cambridge Econometrics. They have a very sophisticated model of the global economy, which allows us to look through to understand the interactions between different sectors, between different countries, how supply chains interact with each other and how they all respond when different sorts of policies are, are implemented. And we feel that that's a real strength for our approach in terms of the explainability when we say compare it to the NGFS scenarios. So the NGFS is the network for greening the financial sector. It's a group of 90 or so central banks that came together to construct some, what we refer to as reference scenarios. And they're a great starting point, but they freely admit that they're a compromise and they're based off a desire to develop something rigorous and generally useful. But in terms of decision-making, we find this explainability really, really useful. So yeah, a good example of that sort of second order impact is, so we can think about, say, the, some of the oil dependent nations. So one surprising one, unless you're familiar with the region, is Canada. So Canada actually derives a huge amount of its GDP from oil, and it happens to be quite expensive oil to extract. It's oil sands, tar sands, as they can be known. And so as it happens during the transition to a greener economy, well, we need less oil. And so the more expensive oil is probably the one that doesn't get dug up first. And that has quite deep ramifications then as it cascades through the economy. But that also creates opportunities. So there's an, fundamentally an economy that needs to transition the way it generates GDP, which is a quite a big message to deliver to some of our big Canadian clients. But it's something that, yeah, we're working through together with them in terms of then understanding the implementation of these technologies that respond to policies 
understanding some of the nuances around, say, how a government, I mean, this is maybe second or third order impact, but so a government will receive an increase in revenue potentially from carbon taxes. Those carbon taxes probably get passed through to consumers as increased costs, but governments could potentially mitigate that by using some of those increased revenues to drop tax rates. So those are some of the interesting nuances that because of the detail of our model, we're able to make sense of for our more sophisticated clients. And I guess if we then take, we've got this all this complex modeling, and I think we very much highlighted that it's a very systemic risk and impacting lots of different areas. Lara, what are the regulators doing about it? Are there any they're being active in this space? Is there things people have got to follow? What's kind of the latest from the regulatory landscape? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say in summary, the regulation is well-intended, well-meaning, definitely doing something. I'd say it's at the current status is slightly open to interpretation as to how far you go in addressing the regulatory needs. So for example, the PRA set out a lot of its expectations in a supervisory statement in 2019 in terms of expectations for general insurers to allow for and address the financial risks associated with climate change in risk management, do scenario analyses like Russ has been talking about, governance, disclosures, things like that. Um, I think the level to which that can be done and particularly whether or not the scenario analysis is just qualitative at this stage or is starting to move on to actually putting numbers on things, that seems to vary quite a lot by firms. We actually surveyed firms near the end of 2021 on how progress was going against a lot of the PRA's expectations. I think what we were seeing there was, again, good intentions, but still a long way to go in actually addressing those regulatory expectations. So yeah, I think there's still quite a long way to go there. The PRA also put out a Dear CEO letter recently, and I guess it was slightly disappointing maybe from my perspective to see climate change not on there explicitly as a top priority compared to some other things, but possibly understandable in the current environment given inflation and geopolitical issues and things. But also, as we've talked about, climate change is very much a systemic risk and opportunity. And so even when it's not on the agenda like the Dear CEO letter explicitly, it's definitely there implicitly in that it comes through in every other risk and priority that the PRA is focusing on. So why do we think it's taking firms so long to get the, especially the liability side of their climate change modelling up to a high standard? Because it's hard. <laughs> I would say, genuinely, every insurer's liabilities are different. Every insurance product is a little bit different and there's no sort of one size fit all measure or data or method or anything. I mean, even modeling the asset side is tricky, but at least there's better industry progression on the investment side. I think, as just mentioned a while ago, that data is a key issue a lot of firms are struggling with. They know it's uncertain, but they just don't know where to start and where to even get data from to do any type of modeling. So that's definitely one of the key reasons. I think we are seeing intentions and possible movements towards, let's just give it a go. Let's accept that it's not going to be perfect. But at least if we have a starting point, then as we monitor over time, at least we can compare that to something and look at relative movements and things, even if the absolute position might not be right. So yeah, I think we are starting to see progress, but data is a real issue. And also the world has been slightly unstable over the last year or so, a couple of years particularly. I feel like every year people say, oh, climate will be a big focus this year. And then 
something like geopolitical issues or inflation or something comes along. So again, I am still hopeful it will be higher on the agenda next year, but we shall see. And those relatives looking at climate change almost as a relative movement is actually, I think, quite a powerful way of doing it. Russ, I know that's something that your modelling also looks at is kind of taking the world as we are now and relative impacts and the difference to kind of help understand climate change rather than trying to necessarily come up with the perfect number looking at relative impacts. Yeah, that's right. So the way that we typically find it most powerful to communicate our output, so relative to the sort of world that you are maybe positioning yourself towards right now, or if you're familiar with the CBES, the PRA's biannual stress test that included climate a couple of years ago, they described what they call the counterfactual baseline, where we're basically considering a world that has neither climate change nor our attempts to mitigate it reflected in that future, which they called it counterfactual because, of course, it's ridiculous. But it's a very helpful baseline for two reasons. One, actually, a lot of entities are still using a baseline worldview, which isn't too far from that. If you think about the way that a lot of financial models are calibrated, it's you look at past data and you use both longitudinal and latitudinal data to then calibrate your model. What do you mean by longitudinal and latitudinal in this context? Good call out. I'll say it again. So when calibrating a model, you might look at data over time, but then also maybe you look at current market conditions and use those to then as part of your calibration. So then you then have to come up with some sort of worldview that says, okay, well, I think that maybe the markets are efficient enough to have reflected climate change up to now and climate policy up to now, but no further. And that's not uncommon from what we see in a lot of our clients in terms of the worldview that they're using to inform asset allocation, business planning, and things like that. And therefore, then presenting our results relative to that makes it a lot easier for them to digest. But then also, if they have a worldview which is different to that, then it's actually quite easy for us to adjust the results to reflect that. But again, it's all about this interpretability and explaining things. Because if I can't explain the results in a way that's meaningful, then no one's going to do anything with the results. Yeah. And taking that last point there, doing something with these results. So I know, Laura, when we first started talking about this, we were like, oh my God, there's nothing. What are we going to do? Like, where do we go? And then actually, I think when you start looking and you start speaking, there there is stuff out there to, to help you understand what the world might look like under these future pathways or just different metrics or indices. But I guess, in your view, what should firms be doing about climate change right now? If they're not already, you know, what's kind of like a minimum that firms really should be looking to do? What a question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> <Let's go. laughs> yeah, I'll tell myself. So many things, as we've talked about, I completely agree with where Russ is coming from, that scenario analysis is the right place to start and the right mechanism for which to have these conversations and understand where the world might go. It needs to be, in my view, feeding into strategic decision-making for the firms that are at least wanting to take that that view of the world. You know, if you can model where pathways might be taking the world and your business and your exposures and your investments and everything, then you can make more informed strategic decisions off the back of it. So 
should you be exiting certain lines of business? Is there enough of an opportunity in a new line of business for you to invest into? Should you be putting certain exclusions through? All those types of questions. So definitely from the strategic side of things. Something we see a lot across a few firms, but not all firms, is cross-practice working groups within a firm on climate change. They seem to work very well. As we've been talking about the nature of climate change and the difference between a lot of other things actuaries are used to dealing with is the systemic nature of it and the fact that it is going to impact everything. And so there's limited value in people working in silo to consider the impact on their area of work. So we see really good collaboration across firms when the reserving team, the capital team, the pricing team, the underwriters, the claims team, the CEO are all in a room together discussing this. So that's a really good thing if, if you don't have a sort of cross-practice in working group within your firm on climate change. That's something we see work really well, I think. In terms of within actuarial work, there's a lot that can be done. Data, as we've been talking about, is still a key concern. But as we've been talking about, you can start somewhere and you can start to do things. So for example, within capital, we see some firms taking a different view possibly than their proprietary the vendor model that they might be using for cat modeling. Every firm has their own internal view of risk as well. And some firms may be loading or applying additional adjustments over and above what they are getting from their vendor model providers. So things like that and capturing climate change risk within validation of your internal model, considering scenarios, again, looking at what could happen if the pathway looks like this. How do we see firms approaching the nuts and bolts of the modeling? Are they building their own climate change models? Are they looking at existing, say, CAT models and trying to, you know, look to them to develop climate change capability? Or are they going externally and looking for specialist climate change modeling? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it varies. We definitely see a big divide between the biggest players in the market and everyone else. And particularly those, for example, that were involved in CBES, that might have progressed them a lot more than other firms. So there's a few, those really big players doing their own modeling, but the large majority don't necessarily have the skills, the resources, the capabilities, the buy-in from their company, et cetera, to do their own modeling. So I think there is and probably should be quite a lot of reliance on other firms modeling, firms like Russell or Tech Finance, for example, to do that type of modeling for them, I think. And a lot. To be honest, depending on their exposures, might not yet be doing any modeling at all from a quantitative side. A lot are kind of addressing scenarios from a a qualitative top-down view of their exposures perspective to date, at least. Yeah, I'm keen to get your take on this as well, Russ. You know, when you obviously you are a provider of specialist modeling for firms, when you go into firms, what do you find they've already done or attempted to do or are hoping to achieve modeling-wise? So typically they'll have looked at, even if they weren't part of CBES, they may well have looked at it and done some soft informal modeling to just understand where they're at. I think the main thing to bear in mind with that is that CBES was an exercise for the regulator done by the regulator. They wanted to understand the size and shape of the risk for the entities they regulate. It wasn't ever intended, and this was a big feedback from a lot of the firms involved, it wasn't particularly decision useful for them, and it was never intended to be. And that should be borne in mind if you're thinking of, say, using those for understanding things for yourself. So what we often find is that yeah, firms have done something in a high level there. So I think, actually, 
there's a huge opportunity for firms as well. What I've observed is that very often firms won't start doing things until they're told to. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so if I think about this Dear CEO letters, one of them called out physical risk as being something that wasn't being focused on highly enough. I think that was the one before last. And it's taken until now, really, for some of the biggest firms to even just ramp up and start addressing that. Whereas if you move now and actually start considering it, you'll be ahead of the wave. And I think that's a really big opportunity. And it's more than just setting net zero targets. It's thinking about this in the broad sense of not just the transition side of how do we help mitigate climate risk, but also just accepting that there is significant climate change already happening that is already baked into the future and it probably isn't being reflected in the way that businesses are running themselves. And then the other opportunities are potentially on the capital issuance side of things. So more innovative, or in fact, just maybe in capital in general. So whether that's capital issuance or or the use of yeah, vehicles, just understanding that there's potential incentives out there for and a huge amount of capital waiting to get behind green initiatives. So you know, there are insurers issuing green bonds, which are intended to support their business activities in, in the transition. And they have some sort of step up in their coupon involved if they fail to achieve those goals. So they end up getting nice, well, relatively cheaper capital maybe, but also they're achieving a good outcome. I totally agree with what you're saying there, Russ, about the opportunity, particularly to start the modeling now. Jess and I have had a lot of conversations where a lot of risks and issues and changes in markets that actuaries have to deal with, things like sudden spikes in inflation, COVID, Ogden rate changes, things like that, happen quite suddenly and we have to panic and scrabble around and maybe aren't necessarily as prepared as we could be to address those risks and we have to do ad hoc things and make adjustments without much data and much time. There's a massive opportunity here with climate change. We know it's coming. There's lots of uncertainty, but we know things are changing and we know we need to do something. And if you can start now and improve over time, you're going to be in a much better place than suddenly reacting down the line when you're forced to. Agreed. I think it's down to incentives, actually. So if I think about, this isn't a job I've ever been close to, but if I were a chief underwriting officer, I don't think I'd be terribly concerned right now because my main concern is the next 12 months and then maybe thinking about the pipeline for the 12 months after it. And unless I'm particularly thinking about entering new markets that maybe support the transition, I don't see this as part of my KPIs. And therefore, what we've observed is that the companies that are moving fastest are where the board are leading and they are setting, frankly, the remuneration of senior leadership to be aligned with these sorts of overall goals. Of course, as we know, you know, if you want to change behavior, you change the incentives first. And then magically people, it's not magic at all, it's just human nature. Fantastic. I feel like it's a really lovely place to kind of end on. I had one more question I wanted to ask about litigation risk. So litigation risk is an area where there isn't really at the moment much data, but it's definitely something that potentially could be massive for firms. It's probably the one thing that has already almost happened or is currently happening, more of a backward-looking rather than forward-looking problem. I guess, yeah, any thoughts on how firms can approach trying to understand on, and model their litigation risk and if there's any kind of key cases that people should be looking out for when it comes to kind of watching it? Yeah, 
I'm on the IFOA's Climate Change and Reserving Working Party, and this is a, an issue we are exploring at the moment, actually, to try and help firms with. For example, as you said, Jess, there's a lot of action on this already, and there was a lot of articles the other day even about another suing of Shell's directors again, about failing to have a climate adaptive strategy, and this time with some of the key investors backing that. I think a key thing we're seeing that can be useful is it's really about understanding your exposures. So working out your exposures, working out where your key vulnerabilities possibly are. And then there is some, I mean, it would be very much proxies at this stage, the type of data that you can use, because until claims start settling and we see precedent set, this is going to be very uncertain. But the world of attribution science is evolving and improving. And there are metrics out there and data sources out there in terms of what proportion of emissions has a certain company contributed to and therefore how could you possibly allocate litigation between firms or if you're looking at potential claims on a DNO policy against suing directors there are things like the is it climate action 100 plus and other things like that which sort of rate the quality of a firm's adherence towards climate metrics and things. So there are things that you could possibly use as a possible indicator as to how likely a firm might be to face litigation in the future. As I said, it's just a proxy and has limitations, but it's coming back to the argument that we were discussing before about relative versus absolute. You can at least compare firms in your portfolio against each other and see maybe one's more likely to face litigation than the other. Just so start getting a feel for your exposures there. Thank you so much, both of you. That's been a fantastic conversation and definitely something I'm obviously super passionate about. So I really hope that as professionals, we we start to to take this risk more seriously and be more active on it. But as always, we like to end the episode on some fun questions. So yes, this time around, we are asking the following, if they are likely or unlikely, we will still be using Microsoft Excel in 10 years time. I think unlikely. 10 years is a long time. Okay. I think it's mm-hmm. ubiquitous and will always be around. <laughs> Brilliant. We've covered the spectrum there. <laughs> Likely or unlikely, Boris Johnson will become UK Prime Minister again. Unlikely. Cool. Nervous, but possibly likely. <laughs> Depends how likely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Likely or unlikely, inflation in the UK will halve this year. I'd like to say likely. <laughs> yeah, I'm hopeful. It's a problem, isn't it, for a lot of people? Actually, it's more the second order things, right? So, because inflation high still seems to mean to the central bank that they have to raise rates, which you know, I'm yeah. not an economist, so I can't say I understand fully the logic behind why that is a such a locked-in thing. But I think it creates a very deep ramifications for a lot of people. And you know we're potentially staring at a, a lot of people with a cliff edge on their mortgage payments in the next couple of years. Yeah. So it's mainly for that reason that I hope that it comes down pretty rapidly. Can't argue with the sentiment here. Okay, here's the biggie. The UK will achieve net zero by 2050. Again, I'm hopeful. I think it's likely, I'll say that I think that it has to be driven out of the private sector. I think for all of the enormous amount of hard work from the civil service. There's just, there's only so much they can do. The political will has to be there too, but also the private sector has to be 100% driving for it too. So I think it's everyone's in it together and we've got to try, right? So I'm going to say likely. 
as if we stopped trying then. We're totally stuffed. <laughs> I'm very similar. <laughs> I'm also <laughs> going to say likely I'm very hopeful and don't want to give up yet. <laughs> Great. And finally, to end on, the next 007 will be a woman. Absolutely. Not having it any other way. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. It's been a man for 60 years. Need a change. And I, I'd like to clarify this point that we mean the person cast is the lead role in the films rather than... <laughs> Otherwise it could get really complicated. Yeah, that's what right, I mean. Exactly. Yeah, rather than, you know, because I just... Someone in the last film was technically a female playing 007, but I'm oh, meaning right. cast as the lead because I feel like someone's going to pick me up on that at some point. <laughs> I think Brilliant. someone already has, but politely, to, so I can clarify. Yeah. I feel like I want to change right my answer it. on the Excel one. <laughs> I feel like I want to explain that where I was coming from was to the extent that we're using it at the moment. Definitely, no. Oh, I loved but your answer not at all. on that. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> it's just so easy to use. It's the same reason why climate scenarios, everyone uses a general equilibrium model because that's what economists are taught at university. So you have yes. millions of economists who think they understand a general equilibrium model and they're comfortable using it. But it's not the right tool for the job. Just like Excel is not the right tool for the job 90% of the time. <laughs> I think we're unearthing valuable material for a future podcast here. <laughs> yeah, people in uni now aren't taught code. It's not Excel anymore. And likewise, are they being taught to outdated economic models or is that being torn up and thrown away? No, no, they are still, but there's a big movement. In fact, there's a working group in the IFOA to kind of lobby universities to do this. Oliver Bettis. I can't remember what it's okay. called now. Yes. So yeah, the yeah. economics work, member of work interest group or something. And maybe you're right. So my children have been taught to code starting age 10, as in proper coding, age 10. So maybe in 10 years, you'll have a generation of people who've been coding since they were 10, and therefore they'll be able to think in that sort of abstract way where you don't have to see what you're doing. Because that's the power of Excel, right? You can literally see what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Who knew there was so much <laughs> under this question? I love it. Great. Oh, thanks so much. But it's been a really good chat. Really, really no, good. Likewise. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We would like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, April Harrison, and the podcast consultants for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.